Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. We have a special guest who I had the pleasure of playing golf with on the weekend, actually, Scott Young, accountant. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, John, and thank you, Emily. Thanks for jumping on board, Scott. We've got quite a few questions to get through today and certainly um, always keen to have an accountant on the potty because you're an important AT member. So let's get into it. Now, Scott's been on the show or the main show quite a few times, so it's not his first rodeo. Uh, Scotty, tell us about or tell the listeners about your business and what you do and how you do it. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, look, Altus is is a financial advice business, so we basically focus upon helping private families with all their financial affairs. So, so obviously, accounting, tax is a big part of that. Then that leads into broader wealth advice and so forth. And we cater for for families of varying varying degrees of wealth and various stages of life. So, what we try and do is obviously partner with those private families as they go across their journeys and life stages, and then match the advice and services appropriately with them. Awesome, awesome. So one of the most common questions that I get and I'm, indeed Emily would get the same is when do we engage an accountant? Like it's uh, we're looking at our first property or we're looking at our, uh, I don't know, we're just trying to create some wealth. Do, do we do it after the fact? Do we get, get one in nice and early long before we've set our strategy? How do we go about it? Yeah, look, good question, John. And, and and Emily, you sort of alluded to it before. Look, I, I'm I'm a big believer in in advice. Okay, and there's a whole lot of, of of marketplace data at the moment about poor advice or people taking advantage of. But but to its truest form, advice, whether it be legal advice, um, architectural advice, I just think advice seeking a professional's opinion is is always a worthwhile process. So to me. In all those forms, the earliest possible moment that you engage in that, the better, right? And then, especially with property, and the reason why property is probably a bit particular is is because of the the transaction costs associated with with an incorrect advice or not seeking advice is very high. So what that means is 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 changing situations post you actually signing a contract or making a decision is is costly. Yeah. So even more important in that situation to to engage at, at the earliest possible moment to make sure you do make the right decision. Most definitely. I think, I mean, obviously, to the point of advice, having your A team advising on their profession, I also think is really important to highlight because a mortgage broker is a mortgage broker who will get the finance of the property and they shouldn't be advising on anything more than that, not even the property itself. An accountant working on the numbers, probably working potentially hand in hand with a financial planner as well, working on long-term goals uh, and then potentially a buyer's advocate in the mix as well when you're buying um, conveyance. Uh, that little A-team 
they kind of need to all know of each other as well. It's always helpful. Um, And they need to stick in their lane of what advice they are giving or they are employed to give as well, which I think is a really important thing to note. Oh, you're absolutely spot on, right? If If you look at where the world's getting faster, more complex and more compliant. So it, it's it's impossible <laughs> to to be across all everything. It's just it, it just practically is, right? So without doubt, you're right. You should have a team around you that in their own areas, whether it be as you said, tax, um, buying, identifying the right property, um, where that fits in your more broader goals, and then how you then structure the purchase to make sure that you 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 want to make sure that everyone's um, playing their role. So. Scotty, when I was young and naive, which was quite some time ago now, uh, I I thought of my accountant at tax time, June 30, right? And I'd, uh, I'd, I'd go and visit them after the fact. So first week in July, I'd book an appointment, right, which um, found out was probably the wrong way to go, to go about it. And when I speak to accountants now, they're busy all year round having regular meetings with their clients and obviously on the complexity of their portfolio varies as to how often you need to speak to someone. But um, talk to us about someone that's got an investment portfolio, might have one or four or three properties. Uh, how often should they be liaising with uh, their accountant? Yeah, mate, look, good, good question. And I, I think it, it um, I always go, the, the rhythm of what I call a, a service, a, an advice relationship can be different right? Some people want to seek comfort um, once a year. Some people want to seek comfort twice a year. But but definitely whenever you're transacting, there should be a chat pre-transaction, right? And, and by pre-transaction, I mean considering a purchase, okay? Considering engaging someone to help me find a property um, or selling or liquidating an asset right? Those types of things, the earliest possible moment you can seek advice about that. And, and we can talk about the reasons why that, right? Like where does it fit? Um, should I sell it this year or next year? Should I be preparing anything in light of those transactions? I think that's the most important thing. Um, and then from an advice perspective, it's probably trying the relationship bit's important to understand where's the individual trying to go and then where does the decision on this transaction fit with their ideal life, their goals, yeah? Most definitely. It's understanding that long-term vision, which I think John and I seems to be a constant message throughout what we are talking about with the listeners. I'm sure they've heard us half on about it, but understanding what's the long-term play here and what you need to have in place to get there. Um, One thing that's popped up a number of times and off air, you said um, the difference between minimizing tax versus avoiding tax. So there's a very big difference because you can't avoid tax. I think it's a, it's a certainty in life. Um, but someone has asked the for tips around minimizing capital gain tax. Now, for some context on this, um, in an episode that I think will be uh, last week's episode for people listening, um, John and I touched on the six-year rule and we both said we are not qualified accountants. We will talk to an accountant. And can you unpack the mystical six-year rule and how it can help minimise capital gains tax, if at all? Yep, no problem. Look, so I'll maybe just start at the, the outset. So I think there's, there was a question around and it referred to capital gains tax. So just so the listeners understand, capital gains tax is basically tax payable on, on a gain that you make on the sale of an asset 
right? So capital is considered an asset. So it's not someone who buys and sells very quickly. It's someone who buys, retains, rents something out, and one day realizes that for a dollar value that's different to what they purchased it for. Now, the simplicity of it is if you buy and sell at a lower value, that means you made a capital loss, okay? Um, let's hope many people don't do that. And if you're considering property as an asset class over the long term, that's a rare occurrence if you buy well and in the right location and so forth. So what it then means about is is it uh, you, you, you then crystallise what they call a capital gains tax event at the point of sale. Okay. Now, if it's about how do you make make sure you minimise or, or or definitely don't overpay your tax? Okay. There's a whole lot of planning that can occur from the outset, right? And I'll come to the six year. I know I probably haven't answered that part, but it's okay. What it is is it's around the the use of the asset, um, and when you acquired it. Okay, and what's occurred between the acquisition date and the sale date? And there's many different scenarios that can happen there. Like the, the, the easiest form is you buy a property, you live in it, okay, and then you sell it later on. Now, there's a great concession there that's, that's called the main residence exemption. That means, and it's the most powerful tax concession in the whole tax system, is that that asset is tax-free. So as we know, um, a large asset in all private families, well, majority of private families, sorry, shouldn't say all, is often the family home. And therefore, when they sell that, um, there's, no, there's, no, there's no tax payable upon that. The problem is, is that there's nuances involved there. Often someone moves into a unit, okay, then they decide to move out of that unit and then they move into a home. Now, if someone sells the unit, well, that's okay because that unit was where they resided. But if they move out of a unit to upgrade into a home, but they decide to keep the unit as an investment property, right, under the main residence exemption, you're only allowed one tax-free residence, okay? So no, you can't, as a husband and wife, buy a property each and claim the main residence. It, it doesn't work like that, okay? There's only one per family. Spouses are connected. De facto's are connected. But in effect, what that means is that unit has changed what its usage was. Now, this is where keeping good records through the whole journey of that property cycle is important. Now, back to the question where you actually said, Emily, is, well, what <laughs> if I move out of that unit and I go overseas, I go on a holiday, um, I don't buy another main residence, okay? The way the CGT legislation says is that you can continue to treat that property that you lived in, okay, as your main residence for a period post moving out, as long as you don't go and acquire another main residence. Yeah. So it's a really strong strategy. I actually used it when I was 18 or 19. Okay. Moved into our, our, our first property. Um, I can remember how much we paid. It's incredible how much we paid back then to now. Um, but then moved out. Okay, and, and maintain that property as our main residence for tax purposes, which in effect means, Emily, that when you sell that property, as long as you have not gone and, and bought another main residence in the middle, you can sell that property and have the uplift and, and potentially will in highly likely be able to get those proceeds all tax-free by treating it as your main residence. Regardless of 
any income that's been gained through that time, Scott. Correct. That's correct. You can rent that property out. You can do it. That the main point is what they're saying is there's there's an absence rule, right? There's an absence concession because the tax system acknowledges the fact that you may have to move. Right, you may have to move for work. You may have to move for family purposes, and and the main point is just saying you can't go and have two main residences. Right, that the point where you trip up there is if you do acquire another main residence. At that point, you must decide which property you will treat as your main residence. So the the property moguls' heads are spinning at the minute. They're saying, "Well, hang on a minute. I've got my own home. I, I don't mind living in it, but I'm not overly excited by it. I can go and." Um, buy another property. I won't live in that one either, and I'll move out and just rent vest. Essentially, yeah. they've got themselves two investment properties, but one of which they're not going to pay any capital gains on, as long as they move back in within that six-year period. Yeah, or sell it. Or correct. sell it. Yep, that's correct. Yep, and 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 as long as and look, just back to that main point. There are a whole lot of rules that it has to be a legitimate. Main residents, like you, you, you have to have moved in, lived there, electoral office, all those types of things, right? Um, in that period of time, right? Um, and but, but, but yes, that's right. Awesome. That's um, thank you for clarifying because a lot of listeners uh, do reach out with different versions of that question, so it's good to good to cross that one off the list nice and early. Uh, while we're on that whole live in the property, sorry, not not live in the property, purchase the property, and where it's an investment property and we want to uh, improve the value of it in that first 12-month period of owning it. So we, we see an old house, we go and buy it, we say, okay, I can lick a paint here, replace the carpets here, put a new fence up here, um, replace the kitchen, etc., and spend 50 grand on, on a reno as soon as I buy it because that's going to improve the rent and it's going to improve the value and, and, uh, and the appeal of it all. Talk to us from a tax perspective about that money spent being either A, claimed in that financial year that uh, I've spent the money or B, being uh, added to the cost base of the property because it's within that first 12 months. Yeah, look, the, 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 and there's a whole lot of guidance out there that the ATO releases about the timing on when you incur deductions. And, and look, one of the areas that is often one of the biggest nuances is well, what's a repair and what's an improvement, and and is it incurred? Um, like, let me give the easy example: a, a tenant, a tenant's in the property, they break something, it gets repaired. That's that's tax deductible. It's being rented. There's income earned. Okay. Then it's like, well, hang on, it didn't break. What we did is we, we replaced something or we re-improved it. The nuances is normally that's considered an improvement, which is then deductible over a period of time. Okay. In your situation, John, where it's incurred before something is either available for rent or tenanted, it arguably goes into the cost base, which means that if there is a depreciable component of it, like you do a kitchen, you will get the deduction for that, but you'll get the deduction over a number of years whilst you're earning the income on it, right? So the strategy around when you spend and when you improve is, is probably an important concept to consider. And, and there'll be some that will be completely not deductible. There'll be some that'll be deductible over time, and there'll be some that will just be straight deductible. Mm. And that really uh, makes it super important to talk to your accountant before you buy this old rundown property 
um, because once you've done that, it's too late, isn't it? Fundamentally, like you buy the property and and then you talk to your accountant. Oh no, I'd wait twelve months if I were you. I'd just get it rented and then if you want to claim it, you you can do it then. But a lot of um, investors are, or oh, I want to get the improvements done now. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so the argument is that then that's being spent before it's actually available for rent or you are earning the income on it, yeah? So that's where the tax system sort of says it, it, it is what you just sort of said, a capital cost, but it's not all lost. There is the depreciation, which is basically the ability to write down assets that are being used to earn the income, but over a number of years. We're going to take a quick break because we've got some more hard-hitting questions for you from our community group on Facebook. So we will be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are back and we have more questions. So the question that we have from Victoria in our Facebook group is, is it worth continuing to own investment properties and be a landlord in Australia if you then move or live permanently in another country? In Victoria's cases is in New South, uh, not New South Wales, New Zealand. (laughs) That would not be overseas, New Zealand. Um, Or does tax become too complicated to make it worthwhile? Interesting question. I literally know nothing about this of context to go. So I'm glad you're here, Scott, to answer the question because I'm keen to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Look, um, so where, where again, if we start, um, international tax and, and foreign ownership of property that does without doubt add complexity to, to Victoria's question. Um, so so I'll, I'll try and answer it. So, so does it become more complicated? Yes, it does. Okay. And let me just talk about a, a nuance here where, where they actually, the government has tried to focus. They did try and tighten up about the foreign land ownership and the rules in relation to that and also limiting capital gains tax concessions and also the level of land tax allocated to foreign landowners. Okay. Which has made it more prohibitive, not less in relation to the actual being a foreign landowner in this country. Okay, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's still not worthwhile. 
right? So I'd probably go, um, without doubt, if you're changing any residency um, and you do have assets, you should absolutely be considering it because in effect, it would be, that's a specific getting some advice. So say you got told, look, um, right now you've made some money here, you've lived in that property, you could sell it tax-free today, okay? How You might sit there and go, okay, that's my alternative. The next question is, well, if I permanently reside overseas, what's the impact of that? If you hear there's an adverse impact to that, that may help you make a decision in relation to what you should be doing on that asset before you leave or take up permanent residency. Yeah. So, Scotty, just uh, let, let's use a case study example here. So, I've got an investment property. Uh, I bought it for, say, 500000 uh, as an Australian resident and it's now worth 700,000, but I'm now living in New Zealand. So I've, I've created a $200,000 gain in that period and I've held it for longer than 12 months. So if I'm now working in New Zealand, not earning Australian dollars, um, is it an easy formula to work out how much tax I'm paying there? No, it's, it's, it's not really. It, there's, there's a few nuances in it. Right. There's, there's what they, what they'd consider is, 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 does it retain its taxable Australian property? Um, the question would really be, are, are you technically a resident there? Like, for example, if your family, if you still own property, you know, and you, st- you, you still have a visa, and you're just going to work for three months, you may technically not be deemed an, a non-Australian tax resident. Sorry, but would what would change is how much income of of made in Australia for that financial year. Ah, uh, correct. Okay, so following on from that, Scott, is there certain times where we we would or wouldn't realise a CGT event? Like obviously when um, as you get older or when you get into retirement phase, um, your, your capital gains or your tax rates change considerably. But and But while we're working, we've got different tax brackets as well. So how do you navigate through all of that? Yeah, look, good question, John. And and without doubt, like um, the capital gains, the capital gain that you make just gets added to your income that you earn in any tax year. So, for example, say someone had had two years off, they wanted to go and do a master's, or they or they decided to do a startup business. Okay, they someone realizing that gain in a if they wanted to exit an asset. Okay, realizing that gain in the year when they weren't earning accessible income would save them a lot of money compared to realising it in the year when they were working full-time and then finished. Now, this is where the planning really rubber hits the road because if they signed a contract on, say, the 28th of June in the year they were working up till, say, March, that gain's going to go in that year on top of the income they were earning. Whereas if they had signed that contract on the 3rd of July, which, look, that's only a week apart, that's going to fall into the next year where they may have already committed to not being working through that period. So without doubt, um, if you do have changes and fluctuations in, in, in your income earning capacity for whatever reason, time off work, um, you planning around the ideal date to, to, to realise that asset makes sense. Now, equally on the other side, um, for our older listeners, um, as they go through into retirement phase, often you see their salary and wage income decrease or drop down dramatically. Days worked may drop down. Therefore, considering the years to realise the asset makes sense. 
equally depending on realising assets in, in the same time period could make sense. Like I said before, it may make more sense to realise one asset in May one year, one asset in July the next. Now, in theory, that's only three months apart, but what you've done is you've split it over two periods and equally, um, if you use a tax agent, you might be paying the tax 12 months later, even though you're, you're realising the asset, uh, you know, within a, a week of 30 June. I think for me, that just highlights how much of a personalised approach to tax is, like based on circumstances and based on on strategy. But it makes a lot of sense, definitely, you know, um, making sure that you're not avoiding tax, but minimising where you can and being strategic in even just the dates of, you know, one financial year versus another can make a big difference. So certainly something for people to consider. Um, a slight change of pace and certainly property related, uh, Lachlan Rack has asked, what are the tax implications of positive gearing versus negative gearing? Which one actually works out better? Which, is there one? I don't know. That's an interesting <laughs> I, I question. Think, I think that's a good question, Lachlan, and it's on everyone's lips because there's sort of buzzwords a bit in, in real estate lingo, aren't they? But let's maybe, Scotty, talk to the listeners about the definitions of them both um, because, yeah, there's pros and cons, obviously, and it's understanding overall strategy. Yeah, so look, the the, 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 the language around positive um, gearing is basically the, the income earned is greater than the expenses incurred in, in a year. So, so a simple example would be um, your rental income's uh, $20,000 a year. It costs you $10,000 a year to, to, to hold that property being um, agents fees, uh, rates, in, interest and otherwise. Therefore, there's a net $10,000 um, positive cash flow. Um, well, I won't say cash flow, we'll just, let's just say positive um, in, 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 from a tax sense, left over. Now, what happens is, is Lachlan, that $10,000 then gets reported in, in your tax return on top of your other earnings, whether that be from salaries, um, your own business, um, consulting fees and otherwise. Okay. Ne negative gearing is the opposite. So um, in the current market um, and, and historically, it has been one of the, the probably more common um, attributes of property, um, especially when, well, I guess there's nuances, right? We've got interest rates very low, but property prices very high. But but in effect, it's it's the reverse of what I said before, where your income might be 20000 but it costs you 30000 a year to hold that property, and therefore you have a net $10,000 shortfall. Now, the way the tax system works to, to incentivize investment and obviously creating rental properties in, the, in, the, in this country is that that 10,000 then comes off your taxable income. So on, on, on the positive side, $10,000 gets added on. Let's just say the person's paying 30% tax. That would mean someone has a $3,000 payable so their net seven grand on the other side, if it's $10,000 negative, the tax system will give them a refund of $3,000 in, in effect, reducing the actual after-tax holding costs of that property. So listening to that example, right, and, and this thing's always interested in me, in that example, you've, you've lost $10,000, right, but you've been able to claim... 30% of it back. So you're still at a net seven grand loss. So why would someone buy a property that 
comes with a seven grand loss each year over the for for the purpose of reducing their taxable income. Yeah, good good question, John. Because uh, the main point is, that let's just say it's a seven hundred thousand dollar property for argument's sake, um, and 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 the net holding cost each year is $7,000. In effect, the person, if you look at historical rates, what they're basically saying is, well, if the investment goes up, say, 5% a year, that's a net $35,000 uplift in their wealth. So, yes, they've spent seven, but their wealth has increased by 35. So, in effect, they're net from a whole holistic perspective, they're in front by 28,000. Now, if you look at the returns that are occurring right now and in recent years in the marketplace, you're seeing returns far greater than 5%. So, you could just magnify, if you just do a simple 10% return on that property, $70,000 uplift in value, it's cost them $7,000 to hold that property. Right, so they've 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 basically accumulated their wealth into their family unit in that year by a net sixty three thousand dollars, and just also remember it hasn't been by them having to work harder in their job or role or whatever it's it, it, it's it's they've made a good investment decision. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, and, and you know a lot of clients we work with, they make good long-term investment decisions. Mm. So coming back to Lachlan's question, Lachlan, which one's better or, or worse? Um, it, it, it obviously depends on your situation if it's purely for tax purposes, but understanding your overall strategy. Like in an ideal world, you'd say, well, I'd rather be 10 grand positively geared and pay the extra three grand tax and my property goes up by five or 10% be, per year. Um, but traditionally in Australian real estate, the higher the cash flow, the lower the, the growth. The, the negative gearing, the real heavy negative gearing occurs in really high blue chip suburbs, doesn't it, around the country? Yeah, I think you're right there, John, and that's definitely what we've seen. Most definitely. And just to state the obvious, I think you would be questioning your strategy if you were negatively gearing and your property wasn't going up in value. That's kind of like... What's the but real but I there, I think sure. on that Emily that's so common. Like we, we see, yeah, oh. I see that a lot. People come to me and say, "Well, I've got this property. I've held it for ten years. It hasn't gone up in value, and it's actually costing me money." Yeah, and, and look, uh, and there you go. Isn't that a great just situation where where that person? I'm not. Let's not because we see that too. They they should have been seeking advice from from the outset because whatever happened there you'd probably sit back and say it's not about pointing blame but that they've made a poor investment decision yeah like if if anyone's in that situation if you're holding an asset class and it's costing you money to hold it and it's not going up in value after you said a long period of time that's what you'd call probably a poor investment the exact definition of definitely we want to avoid that and the way to avoid that is having the right people in place now, I think that does bring us to the end of questions. Am I right, John, uh, for today? I think so. You run this ship, Emily. I'm just oh, um, do in I? second in I'm command. glad we've got that on recording. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a good one about bucket companies, um, Scotty. Do you want to answer that one? Lucy says, uh, a bucket company's inside of trust still a viable option? Been listening to a podcast that say they are, but my accountant says no. In Queensland, if that makes a difference, bucket company. So, first of all, explanation on a bucket company and what they do. 
Yeah, um, John. Look, good, good question. And, and people, this this is this is again back to um, why advice is important because the structure of the purchase is important. Right, and the structure of the purchase is important because families, um, Emily, you touched on it before, ha- have nuances or personalised positions that are different. You know, you have spouses earning different salaries, you have have spouses having different situations, and, and those arrangements often change. People work more, people work less, or whatever it may be. Um, structures form a part of that. Um, structures. Um, uh, Lucy refers to a bucket company um, and a trust. A, a trust and a bucket company is a form of structure, okay? A trust is, is a legal vehicle that you can buy property in this country in and, and it can hold that property on your behalf. Um, it, underneath that, what a trust has is beneficiaries, okay? Often the beneficiaries are the family members, but also there are strategies whereby people, if it's high income earners, they try and stream the income from that trust, it could be the the positive rental income, to a bucket company so that they cap the tax at a lower rate as opposed to it going across into an individual. Um, the the downside, and, and look, there, there, there are nuances on does that strategy work? Yes, it can. Um, in, in, in most cases, um, because of the fact that a company isn't allowed what they call a capital gains tax discount, and probably I should have touched on this earlier, um, the, which a capital gains tax discount, how that works is in, in the situation of property. If an individual or trust owns a property for a period greater than 12 months, 50% of that gain is tax-free, okay? So when it's sold, 50% is tax-free. So in effect, the taxpayer is only paying the tax on half the gain. So that's to stimulate investment. In a situation, if you use a company, to own property, a company is not allowed to get the 50% tax discount. It pays a lower rate of tax, but it pays a lower rate of tax on the whole gain, right? So this is again probably important in, in, in relation to who should acquire the property and whether a structure does make sense. A structure absolutely can make sense, but it's got to fit in with, well, what's the broader strategy and how much are we earning as, as a family unit and it, will that change? And then picking the right vehicle to buy that property. So there's probably an episode two coming up um, based on the complexity of, of bucket companies and, and trusts alone. But, uh, but in summary, Scotty, would uh, some someone that wants to set up a bucket company or a trust commonly would have a higher income or a higher cash flow asset. Yeah, de- definitely, definitely. You, you normally find, and again, I'm I'm an advocate of if if you can keep it simple, please do so. Um, structures do make sense, but but they add complexity, they add cost, so there must be a a, a, a quantifiable benefit. To, to, to utilising it. Now, you do normally see that as people get into the higher income categories because any any uh, marginal benefit you can take on the differences in tax rates is bigger when the earnings are higher. Awesome. No, that's been great. Well, Scott, I think we would love to have you back for another episode down the track because like I said at the very beginning, AT members are crucial in property um, and understanding, you know, what belongs where and what is the best strategy for you personally. But certainly I'm sure there's more questions that will evolve off the back of today's episode as well for our community. So um, 
hopefully you're willing and able to, to help in the future again to jump on the potty. But it's certainly been um, very interesting. I've learned a lot from today. Like it's been very insightful as to some of the accounting based questions that John and I just, when they come through, we're like, oh, that's, that's not us. We need someone to help. So thank you for being that person. No problem. Um, pleasure, Emily. And yep, uh, definitely happy to help you out. So um, thanks, guys. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks so much. We'll be with you next week. Okay, bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.